0: Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. I'm a philosopher who advocates Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. This session is a continuation of last sessions on Jordan Peterson. I had some questions and I have uh, some answers plus some context setting that I want to do in regard to Peterson. Uh, the Perhaps I should start with one, uh, the Daniel, the question about his popularity, you wanna read that one?
1: Yes, so the question is from uh, Nadav, and he asked, why is Jordan Peterson so popular? Does it show there is a segment of population that's hungry for ideas?
0: Yes, it shows that there's a segment of the population that's hungry for not only ideas, but for values and meaning. I think that attributes that are most noticeable in Jordan Peterson are his thoughtfulness. He doesn't shoot from the hip. He doesn't come out with canned pre-digested slogans. You can see his mind in operation when he talks. He often pauses and thinks for a second before he he responds. Uh, The other thing is his courage. You know how he made his fame? He stood up to the gender police, the pronoun police. There was a video that went viral of him confronting some students who demanded that he call them by their preferred pronoun rather than what they are. And uh, he stood up to them, he, without being overtly hostile or super aggressive, he, he stood up and forcefully made his points and that attracted a large audience. And from there he went on because of his third attribute, he's focused on values. He's not just a thinker. He's also a person concerned with the human soul, with values and meaning in life. And that's really what we're going to be talking about today. Speaking of today, My internet is down, so I'm talking to you over the iPhone, and I hope that it is satisfactory for our purposes. That's my office in the background, and uh, I couldn't do the nice uh, background that I have for most of my shows, all the other shows, but a touch of realism for our discussion of the real and the ideal. I got a question from someone in email who asked, is Peterson right to say that meaning implies responsibility? One of his themes is that you have to take responsibility for your values. You have to take responsibility for actualizing your potentialities. And that's what gives meaning. You can't have meaning as a passive rider through life. You have to take responsibility. And responsibility is often a code word for duty. And here, I don't think it is, but it's open to the criticism of being a package deal. This term package deal that Ayn Rand used is Extremely important in looking at any intellectual, any philosopher, and any public intellectual. A package deal is the combination in one conceptual package, one term or one slogan of two fundamentally opposite things on the basis of their having some superficial similarity. So for instance, if I um, made up, well, take stakeholder, I'm not gonna make one. The term stakeholder, we have stakeholder capitalism. Stakeholder is a word designed to put together into one term shareholders who are owners with anybody else who cares what the company does like neighbors, employees, relatives of owners, people living in the same town where the company's business is headquartered, people who wish they worked for the company and live around the globe, anybody who's affected in any way by what a company does, which means everybody on the planet Is considered a stakeholder. So it puts together legal owners who whose property the company is, with people who just want to share the wealth that the company has. So parasites and producers are put together in the term stakeholder. That term should never be used. That's a package deal. Some of them are not what Ayn Rand called anti-concepts, which are concepts like stakeholder designed to wipe out a legitimate concept. Stakeholders designed to wipe out the concept of owner by smearing it in with these other things. And well, lots of people are affected by what the company does and the company should pay attention to everybody. Now, I don't think that Jordan Peterson is floating anti-concepts, but the term responsibility and the term meaning are both vague enough in his mind that they function as package deals. Now, let's take them up separately. Responsibility can mean duty, like, well, I have a responsibility to give back to the community. I have a responsibility to my uh, terrible relatives whom I hate, but they are my family. I have a responsibility to the planet, which, in fact, doesn't give a damn about you. I have, um, okay, so I have all those duties that There's nothing in it for me. It's just my sacrifice that the concept of responsibility is trying to um, name there, trying to christen. Social responsibility, community responsibility, responsibility to God, to country, to neighbors, to relatives, to the poor, to the planet. None of those things are valid. But even if you think they are valid, they're a fundamentally different thing from love. The other meaning of responsibility is the thing you love, the thing you value, for you to be consistent requires certain action on your part. And you should be glad to do them. If you're wife, beloved wife, needs to get a new hairdo, you don't take the attitude, oh, well, I guess I got to get her a hairdo. I got to drive her there or something. Or she needs, uh, she's got appendicitis and you've got to take her to the hospital. You don't think, oh, God, I was going to watch the football game, but I guess I need to take my wife to the hospital so she doesn't die. No. When you value something, taking care of it is part of what valuing is. Sometimes you need a reminder, hey, this is a big value of yours. You want to do this thing that's the responsible thing to do for it. So it's caring in action for what you care for abstractly or caring all the time for what you say you is a value and you you should care for all the time. Caring meaning taking care of and loving. So the responsibility to promote your values uh, is a rational, selfish, and you know we're for selfishness, life-serving thing. The duty, for no reason that you can fathom towards something you don't care about or actively hate is the opposite. But you know, you've got to be, take responsibility, put some together. It's quite a different thing to say, look, if you love something, remember that when it's time to take care of it, you love it. You want it to succeed. On the other hand, if it's, your uh, uh, detested brother whom you hate, you don't have to take care of him and you shouldn't. So that's one package deal. I don't think at all deliberate. Everybody except Ayn Rand makes that kind of mistake, particularly with regard to moral concepts like responsibility. The other concept that can have a package deal is meaning. There are two kinds of meaning that are the opposite of each other. There's the external meaning, where my life has meaning because I'm serving something larger than myself. And then there's the internal meaning my life has meaning because I'm devoted to philosophy. I'm devoted to computers. I'm devoted to making myself into the kind of person I can respect. And I act on that. And that gives my life meaning. The two are opposite. If you're If you regard your actual pursuit of values as, well, that's just practicality, that's meaningless, it gets no significance. But when I go to church and I'm serving God, that gives my life meaning because God has a plan for me. Then you are destroying the only real meaning your life can have, which is the internal, the self-created meaning. So you see, both of them are an issue of values, Are you acting to pursue your values? Or are you acting to pursue something that you're told you ought to value but actually don't? And this takes us into the big obvious gulf between objectivism and Jordan Peterson. God! Jordan Peterson says, Again and again, you cannot have meaning and ideals without something transcendent. Now, so far, I haven't found any place where it tells you what transcendent means. But in its standard meaning, it's equivalent to supernatural. It's something over and above that transcends, that rises above. This world, normal concerns, things connected with normal concerns. Now, a good thing about him is that he also uses the term metaphysical in exactly the way Ayn Rand does. And I've never heard anybody else do that, meaning metaphysical in this usage is pertaining to the essentials. Of man's relationship to existence. Metaphysics as a discipline is a branch of philosophy dealing with the nature of existence, including man's nature. But when you say, I had a metaphysical experience, or I found metaphysical meaning in that painting, what you mean is something pertaining not to the weather today or the current electoral season, but to existence as such anytime, anywhere. So for instance, man has free will is a metaphysical statement. I have to choose what to have for dinner is a journalistic statement. Ayn Rand contrasted metaphysical to journalistic. So to some extent by transcendent, he simply means that which is metaphysical, that which is fundamental, but still about this life. But there'd be no point in connecting it to God if he didn't mean by transcendent, that which is anti-metaphysical supernatural, has nothing to do with life except by positing another world that your life has to relate to. But he talks about the need for ideals. And I wanted to um, read you, where did I put it? Uh Aha. Ayn Rand at age 29, taking the same fact about the need for ideals and using it in the opposite way from Peterson. Peterson says, we need ideals. We need something more than mundane, journalistic, daily existence. We need something metaphysical, and that has to be found outside of life. And here's what Ayn Rand wrote at the age of 29. 1934. The human race has only two unlimited capacities, for suffering and for lying. I want to fight religion as the root of all human lying and the only excuse for suffering. Now, these are notes she made to herself. This was not published anywhere until after her death. I believe, and I want to gather all the facts to illustrate this, that the worst curse on mankind is the ability to consider ideals as something quite abstract and detached from one's everyday life. The ability of living and thinking quite differently. Meaning living one way, thinking another way. In other words, eliminating thinking from your actual life. This applied not to deliberate and conscious hypocrites, but to those more dangerous and hopeless ones who alone with themselves and to themselves tolerate a complete break between their convictions and their lives and still believe that they have convictions to them. Either their ideals or their lives are worthless. And usually both. I hold religion mainly responsible for this. And she goes on, skip a little bit, but just to give the further information as to how religion does it. If a child is taught, as the highest ideals possible, things which he knows are contrary to his own deepest instincts, things such as unselfishness, meekness, and self-sacrifice. If he is told that he is a miserable sinner for not living up to ideals he can never reach and doesn't want to reach, then his natural reaction is to consider all ideals as out of his reach forever is not to be reached at all as something theoretical and quite apart from his own actual life. Thus the beginning of self-hypocrisy, the killing of all possibility and desire for a living ideal. This is a theme, the need for a living, natural, non-transcendent ideal which is based upon your nature and your life and your choices. This theme comes up again and again in Ayn Rand's fiction. And I wanted to uh, read some, because this is where everything comes into conflict. That is, this is where you see the real opposition of Ayn Rand to Jordan Peterson. There is another uh, more deep part about the conceptions of reason and objectivity. But what I'm talking about here is what draws people to objectivism and the errors are what draw them to Jordan Peterson. So this is uh, not the fundamental base, but the key, the meaning of the, the clash of the two where it lives. This issue of ideals are transcendent, or ideals must never be transcendent. There's a scene in The Fountainhead where the hero is saying to another major character, for those of you who know The Fountainhead, Rourke and Winant. Wine and is talking about people. He says, quote, they whine and say, they don't understand the meaning of life. And he says he despises those who seek some sort of higher purpose or universal goal who don't know what to live for, who moan that they must find themselves. Rourke got up, reached out, tore a thick branch off a tree, held it in both hands, One fist closed at each end. Then his wrist and knuckles tense against the resistance. He bent the branch slowly into an arc. Quote, now I can make what I want of it. A bow, a spear, a cane, a railing. That's the meaning of life. Wynon says, your strength, your work. He tossed the branch aside. The material the earth offers you and what you make of it. You couldn't be more life-centered than to give as your example, the meaning of life, a tree branch that you can now make into anything to that will serve your values. Take a breath and we're now going to um, Anthem, which a lot of you have read. The hero at the climax says, I stand here on the summit of the mountain. I lift my head and I spread my arms. This, my body and spirit, this is the end of the quest. I wish to know the meaning of things. I am the meaning. I wish to find a warrant for being. I need no warrant for being. And no word of sanction upon my being. I am the warrant and the sanction. That's the attitude that, quote quote from Anthem, that's the attitude that everyone should have. He's not saying, well. I'm special. He's saying that's the nature of man, that there's no external meaning imposed upon him. He must break off the branch and make something of it. He must reshape the materials of the earth to give it meaning. And there's no external meaning required. Ayn Rand was once asked, what is the meaning of life? And she said, there's no outside thing giving your life meaning. There's a mistake in the question as if there were something outside of you, independent of you, that would imbue meaning on your life. No. Now I want to read a quote that um, is much less well known. This is from a play she wrote called The Ideal in the thirties, was never produced in her lifetime. And this is at the climax of that. She looked at him, her eyes pleading. She whispered, what is it we want, Johnny, you and I? He answered and each word seemed to be reflected in his eyes and his eyes were as a song. Have you ever been in a temple and seen men kneeling silently, reverently, their souls raised to the greatest height they can reach, to the height where they know they are clean and clear and perfect? When their spirit is the end and the reason of all things, then you have wondered, then have you wondered, Why that has to exist only in a temple. Why men can't carry it also into their lives. Why, if they can know the height, they can still want to live less than the highest. That's what we want to live, you and I. And if we can dream, we must also see our dreams in life. If not, of what account are dreams? The heroine says, ah, Johnny, Johnny, of what account is life? None. But who made it so? Those who cannot dream. No. Those who can only dream. So the the meaning of that is that the draining of the meaning of life from life itself is done by those who separate dreams from their actual life. A friend who also knew Ayn Rand said, she considers every, she acts as though she considers every moment of her life to be of supreme importance. And she did, she, she wanted to live on the highest plane. She did not accept the idea that, oh, life is mundane, but there's another realm. It's, uh, yeah, I won't be in heaven in my life, but after I'm dead, I'll be in ecstasy and bliss. She wanted it real and on this earth. And that is the biggest motivational difference between Jordan Peterson and Ayn Rand. Now, uh, we have reached the theoretical stopping point, but there are a few other questions. It's gonna be sort of anticlimactic after those ecstatic quotes, but um, let's take them up. So take a breath and read me one of the other questions, please. One
1: quick. Question We have from Michael is I think Jordan Peterson would be willing to have you on his po- podcast. Have you tried reaching out?
0: No, I haven't. That's a, an idea worth pursuing. I doubt that he would. He has uh, discussed, we, he had a session with two objectivists, Joran Brooke and Greg Sommieri, about three years ago. And I think he was happy with it. Uh, it's worth considering. Thank you.
1: We also have a question from Brian. Uh, I heard a clip of Peterson saying, no one gets away with anything, ever. You cannot twist the fabric of reality without it snapping back at you. Is he on the right track here?
0: Yes. And there is a good side to Jordan Peterson. That sounds like one of them. <clears throat> if he would accept that full clarity means cutting the chicken at the joint, joints in epistemology, you cannot have package deal. And you must go by fundamentals. Plus, there's no separation of the real and the ideal. There should be, if, if there is, you've got a problem. Then I think he would be ready to take the striker's oath.
1: That takes us to the ne- next question from Nadav. Do you think Peterson has a bad or good influence overall? And what about his politics?
0: Uh, I think he has a good influence overall because what people know him for is he's thoughtful. He's courageous and he's concerned with ideals and meaning. You know, he said, I watched a video where he talks about values and hierarchy and very good. He says, you cannot act without a hierarchy of values. And that's exactly what Ayn Rand says. And it's exactly true. The term hierarchy, is almost never used outside of objectivism, but he uses it. And he doesn't use it in this case to mean like the church hierarchy where there's Pope, the bishops. No, he's not talking about some status hierarchy. He's talking about values, some being more important than others. But if he's, I've already criticized. That, so let's go, let's go ahead.
1: And the last question about Peterson is from Ray. What do you think of Peterson's view of abortion?
0: Well, all I know is that he thinks it's immoral or raises serious moral questions, but I'm not sure he wants to make it illegal. So I'm not that informed, but I think um, that is not a sustainable position. If you think something is immoral in regard to another's life, why isn't it in this case murder? You have to have the view that you have only chosen responsibilities, not unchosen responsibilities, and that there's no mystical element in man. There's the consciousness, Man is not a hunk of meat, B.S. Skinner is wrong, man has a mind and that makes him a noble being and potentially a heroic being. But that does not come into existence until the human being is born, until he exists or she. So... If you think it's immoral, I don't think it's going to be ultimately tenable that you think it's okay to kill it. In the if you think the killing of it is immoral, how are you going to support making it legal, not illegal? But it's better than thinking that it's that there's no right. So I plead basically ignorance and say that I don't think there can be a moral, political dichotomy on that fundamental issue. There are things about which you can say, well, that's a legal issue, but not a moral issue. But this is a metaphysical issue to use the term that we both agree on. And I don't think you can sustain a difference there. Next question.
1: Next question is from. Oh, I didn't
0: say about his politics. I don't. uh, He he describes himself as a classical liberal, which is the best label you could apply, of the kind of available culturally available labels. Um, I call myself a capitalist now. I mean, I I used to avoid that because it sounded like, oh, you invest, you're an entrepreneur, but I don't think it reads that way or sounds that way now. So that's the simplest way of saying uh, my political views.
1: We have a bit longer question from Liberty Lama. He asks, where does consciousness come from? And he continues, if it is from an evolutionary source, isn't that simply accidental cause? And if it is accidental, can we trust it?
0: Well, there are a lot of errors in that. Um, We don't actually know where consciousness came from, but the best hypothesis is evolution. Every other faculty of man evolved from uh, lower animals. We know that as we climb the evolutionary scale, the consciousness of the organism becomes more and more flexible, more and more like human beings. So chimpanzees, if you work with them for years and years, can be taught a couple of very concrete words like bird. It's not really concepts, but uh, they have the rudiments, let us put it that way, of forming concepts or a primitive analytics. So we see the continuity in regard to consciousness, it gets more and more complex more and more neurons give rise to more and more flexibility of behavior, and we infer that the conscious life of the thing is more and more like ours. So uh, by far, the best hypothesis is it evolved with the increasing um, size and functionality of the brain. Wouldn't it then be an accident? No, you have a basic misunderstanding of Natural selection or a non-understanding. Evolution works by natural selection. It's selection that separates the good and the bad. There's no accident. The accident is whatever what selection works on. So it's an accident, what the varieties that are born are. But what is born is selected for its survival value. And this is what accounts for the progressive increase in complexity and the maintained adaptiveness of organisms to their environment. You can see it in the big scale very easily. Um, Imagine that there's a, a, a variety of dog born without legs. Well, unless a human being cares for it, it's gonna die. Now imagine a dog is born that can outrun its competitors. It gets to the prey faster. It's going to be able to re- reproduce better. So it's a selection for the more fit, the more pro-life, the more um, survival value among the random mutations. So evolution, and I studied this for my doctoral thesis, which is on this subject and its philosophic significance. So I'm not just speaking off the top of my head, I've read Theodosius Dobchansky, I've met Theodosius Dobchansky, George G. Simpson, uh, Ernst Meyer, I haven't met them, but I I know this field, okay? Uh, And they all say there are two things, random, not just mutation, but sexual recombination, The mother contributes some things, the father contributes some things, and there's a mixing there, and that results in a new thing. But mutations and sexual recombination give the chance element. And then selection picks, uh, reinforces the ones that lead to more uh, survival and more reproduction. So it's... uh, It's not accident, accident only supplies the raw materials. And and then could we trust it? Well, you can't raise the question, can we trust consciousness? You can raise the question, can we trust Biden? But you can't raise the question, can we trust consciousness? Because what are you gonna use to answer the question? What does trust mean? Trust means that you have confidence in the thing based upon its record and what it is, based upon its track record and the nature of the thing. As you understand it, you have confidence in what it's going to do, the the causality of it. But that implies you as a knower, you as a conscious being. There's no grounds to question consciousness. And of course, the fantastic circularity is, if we can't trust consciousness, How do we know that the theory of evolution is true or even plausible? How do we know anything? So you can't say, well, maybe we don't know anything. Maybe we're no better than stones, but then it would follow that X. Stones don't draw conclusions. And it's an axiom that your mind is competent to function. There's no such thing as a self-disqualifying mind. That's a contradiction. Uh related to that, I know there was a question from last time, but what is cognition?
1: Yes, the last uh, question is what is cognition or the definition yeah, of cognition.
0: Cognition is the acquisition of knowledge, the process of the acquisition of knowledge, or the pursuit of the acquisition of knowledge. So it's trying to get or getting knowledge. It's more or less a grammatical convenience. You could use knowledge, but then you'd have to keep saying uh, trying to know. Engaging cognition is, is a better way of putting it grammatically than he was trying to know. Okay, is that uh, it's now four forty-two? I think
1: we should stop. And... Those are all, all the questions. So thank you.
0: Good. Happy coincidence. Uh, I will see you next Monday. Probably not in regard to Jordan Peterson. Probably it would be a new topic. I'm open to suggestions. What you would like to hear about? Thank you. Next Monday. Bye.